going to invite you to turn with me again to Psalm 130. Tonight, God helping us, we're going to look at the last two verses of this psalm. But before we begin, I would like to read the entire psalm, and so we will have that in our minds as we look at this passage this evening. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I want us to look tonight at the last two verses, verses in 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the, with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We're going to look at this by looking at the four phrases of these last two verses. The first one is a call for us to hope in God. The first phrase, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And then the next three, the last three phrases uh, in these two verses are three reasons that are given for why we should hope in God. They are, for with the Lord there is loving kindness. That's the first one. The second one, and with Him is abundant redemption. And the third one, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. So let's begin by looking at the first one. O Israel, hope in the Lord. In verses 7 and 8, there's a subtle shift is as if in these last two verses God has come to the psalmist and he has received what he's been waiting for. And the first thing that we notice that is different in verses 7 and 8 is that now he is compelled to speak to others. How in the world can God come to us and bring his word to us and give us pardon and forgiveness and then we not turn around and tell others about what God has done for our own soul. And so it's a natural thing that if he's truly been forgiven, if he's waited on the Lord and been blessed, it's a natural thing that he would turn and tell others. And we see that in the words, O Israel, hope in the Lord. He is speaking to his countrymen. That's what David does in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, he says, Because I have been forgiven, I will teach transgressors your ways. The dawn has come. With the breaking of the dawn, the word of pardon has appeared. The psalmist has moved out of the depths, and now he encourages others, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Well, why hope in the Lord? Well, three reasons are given. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's look at that first of those three reasons why we should hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. The Hebrew word there, loving kindness, is the word he said. H-E-S-E-D. Sometimes it's spelled C-H-E-S-E-D. But it's a very, uh, a, a very um, often used word in the Old Testament. It, heard, it is there hundreds of times. It is translated by different terms in different versions and in different places. The ESV, I think, in this particular verse translates it as steadfast love. The New King James and the King James use the word mercy. I think the NIV uses unfailing love. The 
New American Standard that I'm reading from says loving kindness. This word is especially connected with the idea of covenant and of loyalty. God is committed to Israel and will not let her go. He has loving kindness for her. And this is what the psalmist knew to be true in the depths. But he felt far away from it when he was in that dark place. But then God came to him and delivered him out of the depths. And now he can say with everything that is in him, with the Lord, there is mercy. With the Lord, there is loving kindness. I knew it before because it was in the word. But now I know it because it's been brought to my soul. The second thing that we see in these verses for why we should hope in the Lord is the words, and with him is abundant redemption. I want us to spend most of our time this evening looking at these two words, abundant redemption. Now, redemption is one of those few words in our Bible that is very comprehensive of all of salvation. It's all comprehended in that word redemption. It's a very interesting word. It means to deliver by the payment of a price, to set free by the payment of a ransom. Then it could be something like a business transaction. You go to the store, you pay the price, and you set free from that store uh, the object that you're buying. You, you buy it, you purchase it, and that would be a redemption, the payment of a price to deliver something uh, to you. But when referring to people, it almost always means to buy back from slavery, to deliver from servitude, to set the slave free by purchase. In Bible times, it was a more a powerful word than it is to us today because slavery was common and there were slaves all around. And so everyone would know about people who were slaves. They would probably would be aware of some of the, the, the awful conditions that people that were uh, in their community, that were around them, lived in, lived in as slaves. Slavery usually resulted from war. Soldiers and kings were often carried away in chains. Women and children often followed these processions of prisoners being taken as the spoils of war, and they were themselves caught up in a life of slavery. Families were torn apart. There were times when some would, would come and redeem uh, someone who was taken captive. It might be someone that's in their family or a friend, someone who had the means to make a redemption and be able to pay a redemption price. But it was tragic when there was no one to be able to redeem them, and that was usually the case. In ancient times, a ransom price could take one of four different forms. A person could simply purchase someone's freedom if they had enough money to pay to uh, meet the redemption price. They could just purchase that person and set them free. Someone could be graciously released if the master of the house is the redeemer. He could simply let his slave go free. That sometimes happened when a slave gained an extraordinary amount of favor with his owner. A third way is a slave could be delivered by conquest or by force. That we've been hearing recently about, was it SEAL Team 6 that we hear about in the news? They've been doing all those incredible things. Well, SEAL Team 6 could go in and rescue a slave and deliver him by force. A slave could be set free through an exchange of prisoners. 
Now, one of the things that's interesting and one of the beautiful things about the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jesus actually does all four of these things. If we are believers, Christ sets us free by paying the ransom price, His blood for our sins. He also sets us free because He is our sovereign master. We belong to Him. He purposes to set us free, and then He does it. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He also sets us free by conquest. He comes in and He conquers our heart. And He overcomes by His power all of our enemies and everything that holds us in captivity and bondage. He overcomes. All power has been given to me, the Gospels tell us. There's also an exchange that takes place. He goes to the cross so that Barabbas can be set free, so that sinners can be set free. He exchanges Himself for His people so that they can be set free. There is substitution. And all of this is involved in this glorious word, the word redemption. In redemption, there is a complete satisfaction of all debt. There is nothing owed by the slave anymore, and he is set forever free. This is the gospel through the obedience of Jesus Christ, his passive obedience, that is his submitting himself in pain and suffering to all the punishment for our sin, his active obedience. That is, his obeying the law through his sinless life. He takes the place of sinners. He satisfies the justice of God in the place of sinners. He is, he is their substitute and representative. When sinners are set free the moment they embrace by spirit-worked faith the wonderful truths of the gospel. The soul is set at liberty. A, he, a, a, a redeemed sinner is a slave no more. Now, this redemption is something that every single human being needs. By nature, we are all conquered. We are sold under sin. We are carried away captive. We're in bonds. We are under the wrath of God, and we're chained up by our own depravity. We have all kinds of things against us. We have committed high crimes against God, our Creator and King. And we have nothing with which to pay our debts. We have nothing of value to offer to the God of heaven. We have no power to escape. We lay in chains, chains of our own making, chains of justice that demand our execution, chains of spiritual impotence that keep us from all spiritual good, chains of death for the wages of of sin is death. And in the midst of this bondage, God comes with a deliverer who really redeems. He redeems us from every aspect of bondage. He redeems us from the curse of the law. He redeems us from our iniquities. He, he redeems us to God by His blood. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, By His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Redemption is a summary term that embraces all of these things. This is a summary of this beautiful psalm, Psalm 130, the word redemption. It's what it's been leading to, up to from the very beginning. The depths of verse 1, the crying out of verse 2, the hopeless condition in verse 3, the forgiveness of verse 4, the waiting of verse 5. The longing and expectation of verse 6 is all been building up to this glorious redemption from every bondage. There is liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is at this climactic point of this psalm, this wonderful adjective, the word abundant. 
I think the ESV has the word plentiful. If you have a King James Version, uh, there's the word plenteous. I'm going to use that word, plenteous redemption, because a lot. if you read a lot of the, the older writers, that was kind of a, a, a famous term, plenteous redemption. You see that term when you read. Our text doesn't just say redemption. Redemption is wonderful. It's everything that we need. But it is, it is as if God wants to encourage us that no matter how great we think redemption is, it is more. It is bigger. It is more than it needs to be. It is over the top wonderful. It is a plenteous redemption. The word abundant means great or much or many or large. It can, it can mean great in quantity or it can mean great in quality. I've heard this word used, uh, to have you heard this word described as unboundless fullness? Now, what does it possess that makes it be so full, so abundant, so plentiful? Well, let me ne- give you uh, some things that make it be that way. First of all, the greatness and the infinity of the ransom paid. In Bible times, when the captive was freed, a sufficient payment price had to be paid. But what is required to redeem a soul? Matthew 16, 26 says this. You'll be familiar with this verse. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The soul there is compared to the whole world. What is valuable enough to buy not one soul but to buy a great multitude of souls. It requires something that is a plenteous redemption. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 tells us what it is. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Is there anything more wonderful in this world than the precious blood of Christ. Is anything more valuable than that? It is the giving of the life that is connected to the perfect soul. That is what is being given in the redemption price that is being paid for our salvation. There's nothing better in all the world and the greatness, the abundance, the fullness of this great price paid by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, Christian, is there anything that comforts your soul? Anything that gives you hope? Anything that lifts you up? Anything that wins you like this? This abundant, this plenteous redemption. There are times when we consider our own sin and we think, how could God have any compassion, any mercy, any forgiveness for me? But when we look at the cross and we see the sinless Son of God assuming all of our debt, shedding the blood that we should have shed, we are filled with the plenteousness, the abundance of this grace. It's not possible to exaggerate this point, the value of what has been given in the redemption of Christ, the fullness of this atonement. Martin Luther says, One drop of his blood is sufficient to cleanse a thousand worlds. Luther is saying that he is an infinite Savior, that in the Father's judgment there is no end to the value of the blood of his Son. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe 
that the efficacy of Christ's blood knows no other limit than the purpose of God. The blood of Christ is valuable beyond measure. There's no end to it. Turn with me to Hebrews 9 for a moment. Hebrews 9. I want us to look at verses 11 through 15. Hebrews chapter 9. Where we read these words. For when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the, and not through the blood of goats and cows, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who had been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason He is the mediator of our new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the, the eternal inheritance. The abundance here means that the blood of Christ could do what the blood of bulls and goats could never do. The sacrifices that were made with bulls and goats, there were thousands and thousands. I think we'd be safe to say there were millions of sacrifices that were made. Yet all of them collectively are not worth this one sacrifice, this one and this only one that is able to save. It is a plenteous redemption. Friends, if we perish, it will not be because the blood of Christ did not have plenty of value or because Christ did not shed enough blood. It will be because we did not see and to believe in the value that was there. And let me give you another reason why it's plenteous. It is plenteous because of what the abundant fullness of that blood does in relation to our sin. Sin is serious. The misery and the corruption of it and the consequences of it are serious. The depths to which it brings us are serious. The demerit of sin is unspeakable. We are desperately wicked sinners. How can grace overcome all the liabilities that come from our sin? Well, it is only through the abundance of the redemption found in Christ. We have plenty of guilt, but there is plenty of redemption in Christ to wipe away all the guilt of my sin. No matter how much guilt it is, no matter how many sins there are, no matter how horrible my sins are, no matter how many skeletons I have in my closet, this blood reaches all sin. It covers every sin. It removes the guilt of all sin. The redemption of Jesus is higher and broader than all of the mountains of my transgressions. It is a plenteous redemption. Another reason, and let me just mention a few briefly. Another reason, it is plenteous because it wipes out the punishment of sin. We deserve wrath. We deserve death. We deserve hell. The redemption of Christ delivers us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. There's no condemnation to those who were in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. It is plenteous because it wipes out the power of sin. Sin will not be master over you, Romans 6.14. Now that's an amazing thing, 
The blood of Jesus addresses that as well. We're not just redeemed from the consequences of sin in a legal sense, so that we are set right with God as our judge, but the redeemed are exercised to mortify sin, to be sanctified. The plenteous redemption of Christ is the basis for the Spirit's indwelling work, His sanctifying work, His life-altering work. It's rooted in this abundant, this plenteous redemption. It is plenteous because of the freeness of the gospel offer. It is all of grace. We cannot add anything to it. It doesn't need to have anything added to it. But even if it did, we would not be able to add anything to that redemption. God is satisfied with that blood. The greatest honor we can do to God is to believe. You know, we talk about glorifying God. We say that we're to do all things to the glory of God. Well, here is where it starts to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust in nothing else but this plenteous redemption to save us. That's where it begins, our glorifying God. It is plenteous because of the distress and the pains from which it frees us. Slaves suffer. Slaves weep. Slaves live unhappy lives. This world and this life of we are not in Christ as a life of slavery, and we're faced with so many troubles in this life, so many disappointments, so many frustrations, so many fears, so many uncertainties, so many sicknesses. Where are you without a Savior? This redemption delivers us from all of these things, from all of the bitterness that life can bring. It removes us from the fear of God's displeasure, from the fear and uncertainty concerning our future from the torment of our guilty conscience, from the fear of death and judgment. Plenteous redemption delivers us from all the sorrows and all the night and all the tears and all the pain. With Him, there is plenteous redemption. It is plenteous because it introduces us to all good. You could say that Christians have the best of both worlds. You know true joy here, and then we, we know true joy is waiting for us hereafter, all purchased by redemption. Jesus does much more than just release His bride. He doesn't just take away her chains and the humiliation of her long captivity. He adorns her with jewels. He obtains all the benefits of royalty. The slave is lifted to the throne. She becomes the queen. Christ chooses her and dresses her in the riches of his own righteousness, and he beautifies her with his own graces. Through his death, he gives her the joys of pardon, the spirit of adoption, the assurance of salvation, power over this world, perseverance in grace, the communion of saints, the anticipation of being with Jesus forever. And we cannot even begin to understand what it would be like to know God and enjoy Him forever. You know, remember the question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What does it mean to enjoy God forever? Well, I don't know. But I do know this. We will enjoy God forever because of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is a God of abundant, overflowing plenteous redemption. God is not stingy and miserly. There, is, there are so many who need to be liberated from a small, 
terrible, oppressive view of God as if he is some kind of tyrant who wants to, who wants to take pleasure uh, in bringing misery to people and who holds a carrot out in front of people with no intention of ever giving them anything good. God is not a mean, arbitrary God. The Bible knows nothing of a God like that. The God of the Bible is the God who overflows with plenteous redemption. All that you need, He has in more. His grace is greater than all your sin. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 5.20 We stand at the fountain of God's love and mercy and redemption. And what we find there is that nobody can sin so as to have a a need greater than what can be supplied at that fountain. What you find in Christ is huge and vast. It is abundant. It is plenteous. It is overflowing. Now the third reason that's given in our text is, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. This psalm ends with this promise. This is an absolute promise. It's not a conditional promise. There's no conditions here in this statement. This is an absolute promise. He will redeem Israel. Notice the certainty here. It doesn't say he may or he might redeem Israel. It doesn't say that he desires to redeem Israel. It doesn't say that he will make it possible for Israel to be redeemed if Israel will do such and such. It says he will redeem Israel. Remember that redemption has one thing as its goal, freedom. There is no point in the payment of a price unless freedom is obtained. In fact, no redemption has been made if the slave is not set free. But our verse tells us very clearly and with certainty that Israel will be redeemed from all iniquity by the payment of a price. Note that the psalmist says he will redeem. He is looking to the future. From our perspective, looking back to the cross, we might say it as he has redeemed. That's the language of the New Testament. It always speaks about redemption in the past tense. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Just give you an example. The New Testament always talks about redemption in the past tense. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Past tense. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Past tense. Verse 9, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Justified by his blood. Past tense. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Past tense. To God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled. We shall be saved by his life. The New Testament always looks back to redemption as an accomplished thing, a finished thing. And our verse says with certainty that Israel will be delivered from all sin, which really raises a number of interesting questions. Is it true that everyone who at first glance we would consider to be Israel has been actually and truly saved, forgiven of all sins, made to fear the Lord and to wait for Him? What about all those in ancient Israel who were wicked and unbelieving? Are they redeemed from all of their sins? What about those, including ourselves, who are not at first glance Israel? 
Is there hope for us? Is there redemption for us? Are we excluded by this word Israel? Well, the answer to both of these questions is really the same. It's clear throughout the scriptures that the true Israel of God, the Israel that God is saving and redeeming and redeeming is not a racial or national group. Paul in Romans 9 says, Look at Isaac and Ishmael, brothers and sons of Abraham, one of true Israel, one not. In that same chapter, Paul says, Look at Jacob and Esau, twins in their mother's womb, one of true Israel, one not. Then in a few chapters later in Romans chapter 11, Paul teaches that we Gentiles have been grafted into the tree of God's true Israel so that we are included in God's redemption. In Romans chapter 2, Paul speaks directly to this point. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God, who is a true Jew, not one that we would look at and say outwardly, that's a Jewish person. Paul was very clear, a true Jew is one who has been circumcised not on the outside, but on the inside, and, that, and that, that circumcising work is done by the Spirit of God. It is in salvation. Philippians 3.3 3 says, For we are, the true, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The true Israel of God is made up of all that Christ redeemed on the cross, and they certainly will be delivered from all their iniquities. Well, you may ask, how can I know if I am in the Israel that will certainly be redeemed from all iniquity? It's a question we ought to ask. We need to ask. And what could be more, uh, a more important question than that? Well, actually, it's a very easy uh, question to answer. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And look with me at verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Then look down at verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Then look down to the end of the chapter, verses 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor, free, slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant, heirs according to promise. You know that you are Abraham's seed when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one way that you can know if you're part of the Israel of God. There's only one simple question to ask. Do you believe in Christ? The verses that we just read said, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Do you believe? Now look with me at the last words of verse 8. It says, from all his iniquities. From all his iniquities. There is a day coming when God will actually free you from all of your sin, 
All of the consequences and effects of sin will be removed. All the sorrows and the depths that we know will be gone forever. You remember the words of the hymn, When the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more? God's covenant commitment to deliver Israel is certain, and it will be done. God has purposed to do it, and nothing can hold back His hand when it reaches out to save. God's purposes will not be thwarted. They will not be derailed. They will not be frustrated or hindered in any way. It is certain. So we can hope and we can have confidence in these things. We can wait in them. We can rest in them. Listen to me, dear ones. These experiences that we have now will not be the last word. Now, some of us God has gloriously set free and you have a confidence in what God has done for you and you breathe that in and it's yours. There are others of us that struggle and wonder at times if God has really forgiven us of our sins. Some of us wrestle back and forth with whether or not we have assurance. For those of you that struggle in this way, let me tell you that there is coming a day when God Himself and His Son will come and free us once and for all from all of our iniquities, all of our twistings and our crookedness, all of our doubts and uncertainties and sorrows, and we will never, ever doubt again. Psalm 130 teaches us the sinfulness of sin, the depths to which we can bring ourselves because of our own thoughts and words and deeds. But it teaches us something else. It teaches us about the incredible goodness and mercy and power of our God to save and deliver and redeem. He is plenteous. It also teaches us the importance of waiting on the Lord, the need to pray and seek God's face, the need to depend and rest in Him. The more you are aware of your sin, the more you marvel at the grace of God. The more you find yourselves in the depths, the more you rejoice in the heights to which grace can take you. If you're not a Christian and you're still in your sins, you need to understand that there's no way that you can stand before a holy God. Psalm 130 has taught us that. Absolutely no way. On the last day, it will not be a matter of God putting your good on one side of the scale and your bad on the other. That's not how it works. What we end up finding out is that those things we want to put on the good side of the scale on the last day, God looks at and He says those things are not good at all. They all belong on the other side. Our righteousness is less than nothing. We all need to understand that God is just and holy and righteous. We need also to know that there is forgiveness with this God. You may wonder if this God could possibly forgive you. The answer is a resounding yes. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in the gospel. Believe God. As our psalm says, put your hope in His Word. You must believe it for yourself. It's not enough to think that the gospel is good news for someone. You must come to the place that you say, the gospel is good news for me. Jesus Christ is a Savior for me. The forgiveness of God that God offers is for me. Believe in Christ. His redemption is abundant and full, and He will deliver you from every sin. 
In the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a plenteous redemption. May God help us all to believe and to trust in what Christ has done. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that there's no question of if Christ did enough or, or if what has been done can really save us. Lord, we know that you have given us a plenteous redemption, that, that it overflows, that it's, that it's a thousand, a million times more than it ever would need to be to save sinners. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to appreciate it, to long for it, to, to love it, and, Lord, for it to be one of the things that is uh, at the forefront of our thoughts, that our God has blessed us in this incredible, wonderful way. And, Lord, I do pray that for people that don't know Christ, that you would have mercy for them, that by your grace they would come to know this great mercy, this great redemption, this great loving kindness that comes from our God. And we ask these things, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.